Welcome to Digging the Dharma, where we dig into the Buddhist Dharma and explore ways of bringing these 2,500-year-old teachings into our lives. I'm Doug Smith of Doug's Dharma on YouTube and the Online Dharma Institute. And I'm John Aaron, teacher at New York Insight Meditation Center and Space to Meditate and an MBSR teacher and trainer. Well, good morning, John. How are you? It's not well. morning, it's afternoon, but that doesn't say, matter. you know, it, it was morning, but now it's afternoon. And, you know, yeah. when people are listening to this, it could be any time. So, good day, I good say. Day, good day to you. <laughs> Fine, sir. Yes. So, what are we talking about? Ah, yes. Greed. Yes, greed. Yeah. Fun so, topic. Yeah, indeed. I mean, you know, one of my favorite images is the the wheel of samsara and and as people may know in the middle of that wheel is that hub and so we'll be talking about one of those images in the hub which is is what a, a pig a rooster or a cock and uh uh what's the third image i can't remember uh, um oh my gosh this is and embarrassing. I was going to, I was, gonna, I was then going to ask you which one is greed. Cause I don't even remember that. <laughs> greed. I think is the pig. Uh, okay. Um, which isn't really fair to pigs, but, um, <laughs> yeah, it is. uh, what is the delusion? I, I can't remember what the delusion character is, but there's the pig and the cock. Um, I'm yeah. sure that our audience will know and they will yeah, send well, us an they're email. They're going to send us. How can you dare forget? Well, yep. it's senior moment for me anyway. So yes, greed. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the three poisons. And in many ways, I mean, I was going to say the deepest, not the deepest. I mean, ignorance, I guess, is the deepest, but it's the one that I think is most present for us during our lives, I think. Yeah. And I think greed is almost, you know, <clears throat> as we really think about it present in our lives, it's not really greed. It's like mm. unnecessary desire or desire for things which are unwholesome or desire for things which actually will not bring us happiness. You know, which is a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And um, <laughs> I don't know if you watched yet the uh, film um, "Don't Look Up." I haven't, but I've heard about it. Yeah. So there's a there's a scene <laughs> toward the end, just as the world is perhaps about to be destroyed, uh, when the son of the president, uh, who's played by uh, Josh Gad. <laughs> The president is Meryl Streep, and 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 Josh, and so Meryl Streep does this little sort of faux prayer, and then Josh Gad wants to do a prayer, and his prayer is for stuff, you know, all the all the good stuff in our life, like you know, video games, and you know, this is like <laughs> it was such a brilliant scene, and then I learned it was completely improvised, but it's just like this idea of stuff, and the stuff of our life that you know, on one level we think we need. And in some cases, obviously, we do need. But the question is, do we find happiness in that stuff? And are we always, therefore, looking for more stuff, which is, you know, what is the real root of suffering? You know, the craving for more and more or the fear that we, we're going to lose what we have. Recognizing that desire is healthy or not, I think, is, is the interesting question and the interesting investigation. Sure, sure. And... I think oftentimes what uh, I see in myself and I, I assume happens with lots of people is that we try to escape the the dukkha, the, the suffering in our lives by 
just getting lost in new things, uh, buying something new. I mean, it's, you know, what is it? Retail therapy. Right. Um, which is, you know, is a lot of fun, you know, because it takes you out of your, I mean, out, quote unquote, out of yourself. Not really. I mean, you're, 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 what you're doing is trying to attract things to yourself, but, uh, it takes you out of the situation that you're in. So you're no longer thinking about it. I mean, it's sort of like the not particularly healthy way of dealing with ruminating thoughts is to substitute something else for them, which is, you know, trying to own something else or, well, that's yeah. the uh, right. I mean, there's a way of doing that, which is more skillful, of course. But yeah, um, yeah and I, and and of course, you know, listen. I, I, I'm sure both of us get into the the kind of shopping retail therapy mode every once in a while. Oh yeah. Um, and I, I think the, the the funny part about that is it's not so much whether you do retail, um, you know, find yourself going online and just looking at stuff. Um, it's like, are you aware of what you're doing, right? So it's that moment, if you're literally not even aware that you're doing this to escape something, um, that it is your kind of, it's your drug of choice in this case, right? If you're not aware of that, then there's an issue. But if there's like a conscious, you know, right now, I could use some retail therapy. I'm just going to go look for this thing that I think I need, you know. Or I'm going to see what motorcycles are on sale right now, even though I don't have the money or the desire really for a new motorcycle. It's just like, I just want to look, you know. And and then, of course, you get caught up in um, the, 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 the um, tyranny of choice, right? So you have all these options in front of you, and so the greed just doesn't know what to do um, except, like, buy them all or whatever. I mean, it, it, we can really find ourselves in a pretty precarious place. I think it might be more useful to look at kind of just the moment to moment or everyday notions of, of how desire will actually get in the way of something. Um, or we may, may want to talk about even the desire in practice, mm. you know, as we're meditating, you know, what is unhealthy desire? Um, so that's... Well, I think one thing that, that occurs to me is just the way that, I mean, if I look at the the way... I feel desire associated with owning things is this kind of knee-jerk feeling, which I, as you note, we don't ordinarily look into, that life is going to be better after I own this, you know, that somehow, I mean, and it's not, it's not, it's not a thought that's explicit. It's just there in the background that, you know, the suffering that I'm going through right now is due to the fact that I don't own this thing. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you know, if I just went out and bought this, you know, I would feel better. And, you know, you go through this time after time after time thinking that it's going to, you know, every time you do this, it's going to make your life better, but you end up in exactly the same place, you know. And I think that's the awareness there is is one that that takes time to actually learn within meditation because you actually have to realize what's going on. And that takes, that takes some effort, I think. But once you have, then it does diminish a little bit the greed, uh, at least I find in myself. Uh, it doesn't go away, but it just, you know, you, you're a little bit more, as you say, a little bit more aware of what's going on when you're, when you're out looking at things. Yeah, and, and there can be, <clears throat> for me, you know, one of the antidotes to that is humor. Yeah. <laughs> just yeah. like recognizing, oh, yeah, I know, I know I thought that would make me happy, but I know that it doesn't make me happy. So why am I doing this? You know? yeah. <laughs> it's like, why do I keep doing this? 
I'm, yeah. I'm laughing at myself for doing it. Um, you know, and, and there's, and this of course is one of the, we consider the quality of mindfulness of the recollective quality of mindfulness and, and, you know, recalling those moments where you thought something would make you happy and realizing it actually in the end, it made you happy for two or three minutes or two <laughs> or three days or two or three months. And then you got bored with it. Or, you know, there, there's so many examples that I'm sure most of us have of those kinds of, of, uh, responses and, and actions. So, but then, you know, it's funny, I was talking about, um, the fetters and, and the taints and, uh, the, the lower fetters and the higher fetters. And, you know, one of the higher fetters, which I find interesting, and maybe you'd have some, be able to shed some light on this, is one of the, the five higher fetters is desire for rebirth in the realm of luminous form. Mm. And, and desire for rebirth in the formless realm. Yeah. So th these are what would at first seem to be actually wholesome desires, but they're considered as fetters. So that's a really interesting line. You know, I wonder what your take on that is. Well, I think it has to do with uh, deep states of samadhi, deep states of meditative mm -hmm. absorption and becoming attached to them. I, mean, I think that's the sort of the general idea that that although these states, uh, states of meditation are wholesome and they're indeed in the early tradition at least used to try to get it, to wean us away from our ordinary tendency to to want material objects um, what the buddha says is that the pleasure got through these kinds of meditative absorption jhana as it's called or the formless attainments is mm -hmm. a higher form of pleasure than we get from sense pleasures so it can help us to sort of leave the sense pleasures behind to an extent and not be attached to them. But then the, the concern, the worry, the, the problem comes if you become attached then to the, to the, jhan, the jhanic pleasures. And there's a little bit of debate, I think, within the community about how much of a, a danger that really is. Uh, I, my understanding is that some people believe it's not really that much of a danger. People don't really get attached to these states. I don't know. I mean, and I think that the existence of these fet existence of these as fetters shows that at least there can be a subtle attachment to them. Right. Um, that uh, you know, for those of us who are that far along the path, we'll have to worry about. Um, I don't put myself in that camp, so it's not my worry at this point. But um, certainly, I could see it being a worry. Yeah, although you know, there are there are certain people who fall into these genres very easily. Mm. and and you know can find great bliss and that becomes their practice and become attached to that state of bliss and that state of uh, what's what's the expression uh um rapture and bliss i think is yeah funny. but luminous form oh. yeah. and um <clears throat> there's there's i've never experienced it either but you get attached to that and then you never bother to kind of investigate anything else which is what really this is the investigation and the interest in our own attachment that is going to lead us to freedom. And so if we're, we're stuck in those, whatever that, those realms of bliss are, you know, we just get stuck there and, and that becomes almost a form of addiction, right. I suppose, you know, and so that would be uh, an unwholesome fetter. I mean, that would be a fetter. In well, and the sense. other yeah. the other concern I think, which is related, is is um, that we find in different 
suttas in the early tradition is this concern that we don't mistake those states of meditation for enlightenment. Exactly, yeah. Um, because some people, at least historically, at least according to the Buddhists, some people historically have mistaken those for enlightenment. Um, and so in in the first sutta in the Digha Nikaya, there's a whole list of wrong views. And some of these are the wrong views that, you know, this or that um, deep state of meditative absorption is a form of enlightenment. It's like it's not. It's not, it's just a it's just a pleasant state here and now, but it's not, you know, it's not the ending of greed, hatred, and ignorance. Um, exactly. Yeah. 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 And so, you know, I, I think our practice, you know, getting away from that particular set of fetters, you know, the practice is simply one of realizing, you know, what desires are wholesome and helpful and what desires are not. And, you know, so one could say that, you know, if we were to sort of define greed versus wholesome desire, right? I mean, greed is a, is, is a desire which simply feeds the self and, you know, where, where we can take pride in ownership of something or pride in, you know, being involved with a certain person or, you know, how we, how prideful we become as a result of that greed, which, and of course, pride is yet another, almost another fetter, you know, that, um, and, and so, you know, whereas, you know, forms of desire, which are not, we could have desire for the, you know, the well-being of a person. I mean, obviously, that's a perfectly wholesome desire and, you know, not a desire that leads to craving, right? It's just, yes, we want this person to be better, but we also accept the fact that they may not. Um, we want, you know, presumably we want a desire for peace, <laughs> you know, obviously a perfectly wholesome desire. If we become attached to that desire, however, you know, we're going to find suffering because the likelihood of there being the type of peace that we're thinking of, world peace, you know, is unfortunately pretty unlikely. And yet the desire is still healthy. Yeah, and, and I think there are two different ways also of looking at sort of healthy and unhealthy desires. I mean, one is the sort of more unworldly way and the, the sort of the more advanced way where, I mean, if we're looking at the, the, the healthy desires from the point of view of like the enlightened being or the Buddha, mm -hmm. there, you know, then our, the number of healthy desires we're going to have is very, very small compared to our ordinary desires we have in daily life. I think it's important also to look at the fact that desires may be healthy for us in certain ways on certain levels of stages of the path where, you know, seen from the final picture are not so healthy. I mean, for example, uh, you know, I mean, the Buddha says it's perfectly fine for the householder to make a living and to make money and to guard their wealth. That, of course, all involves desires. From the final picture, those aren't really healthy desires because the Buddha believes we should be able to give up all this stuff. But there's a time in our lives when, at least if we're not doing things that are unethical or hurting people, then, you know, what's the problem with it? I mean, it's perfectly okay mm -hmm. in its place. Um, or, you know, the, uh, you know, clinging to the Dharma, you know, uh, desire. I mean, one of our ways we express our greed is by holding to views, uh, holding to opinions, holding to beliefs. And uh, many people will, you know, cling to aspects of the Dharma, will hold to them very strongly. And that can be helpful to us at certain stages because it, you know, gives us motivation along the path and so on, but also can be unhealthy. And of course, from the final picture, 
is unhealthy because the Buddha says we have to, you know, leave these behind. Um, so I think, you know, there's different ways of looking at it depending on where we are in the path. And we have to be careful not to, you know, sort of, I think, become too dogmatic about, you know, which desire, you know, like the, only a tiny number of desires are good for us, you know. <laughs> right. Or, or, you know, letting like renunciate, taking renunciation. I mean, if we're householders, taking sure. renunciation so seriously by letting go of so much that we actually have let go of more than we should have in order for, you know, for our own survival. <laughs> right. And so, you know, we're, we're sort of realizing that, okay, there's finding that balance, you know, as we, as we move along this path. And, you know, I just, um, I mean, it's really interesting to, like we're doing here, you know, occasionally getting into Dharma discussions where we don't necessarily have the same view or around a teaching. And, you know, I think we, we, we both recognize that the uselessness of holding on to a view, which is, you know, just like holding on to the desire to be right. Yeah. And another big desire that uh, comes up a lot, uh, I've noticed, is a desire to know. So, you know, I was working with a, a somebody in a class today who, you know, has a particular health issue and she doesn't know what's going to happen. And she wants to know what's going to happen. And, and you know, so, of course, one way of, I mean, the, 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 the normal initial response to the not knowing can be fear, right? Which is, of course, not at all helpful. And it's just a thought about something that hasn't happened. You know, so can we let go of the desire to know and find, you know, some delight and even spaciousness in the not knowing? But that's a big leap for a lot of people. You know, that desire for control, that desire for, and not, not control in the, you know, megalomaniac type control, just like control of like what's going to happen in my life as if we ever had it, <laughs> right? So there's a, a delusion about the control, but then there's, you know, more desire about the control. So it's like, can we see, you know, what it's like to let go of control for a moment? Or let go of the idea of control. You know, what it, what do we have to lose? What do we have to gain? What would we do if we actually had control? What would I do if I knew what was going to happen? Right. And even then, you, you might not be effective, you know, exactly. if you knew what was going to happen. Of course. Be, yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, the other thing is that, I mean, these things are, these questions you're raising are so nuanced because, I mean, part of the practice that we know is so useful is one of investigation, investigation of states, curiosity. And that also, that of course also is, you know, motivated by wanting to know, but it's a kind of a healthy wanting to know. Uh, you know, it's it's trying to investigate and find out about the source of our own pain and all the rest. But you know, we can't. We shouldn't take these things too far. It's sort of like having having them in their in their place, I guess. Right. And so, you know, mindfulness of mind is the knowing of a mind. One aspect, one of the one of the trainings in that practice is just knowing the mind that is uh, lustful, or you know filled with desire and knowing the mind that's not filled with desire. So that, that knowing is more of a, I wouldn't necessarily call it a tacit knowing, but it's just an understanding Oh, this is, this is the mind like this. And this is the mind like this. And it's not even like state making a judgment call necessarily at that moment, but it's just like, Oh, 
you know, how often does the mind go into desire? How often, you know, what, what's going on behind that? As you say, that investigative, investigative quality of mindfulness, the probing quality of mindfulness is really key to our understanding of the arising of a particular mind state of, of lust, um, lust for sensual pleasures or whatever. When we talk about like the greed types and the deluded types, right? Or the aversive types, you know, I know I'm a, I'm a greed type, you know, it's like naturally when I, you know, I was on retreat a few weeks ago and it was like, as always happens with retreat, you know, for me, you know, the first few days are just filled with all sorts of lustful thoughts <laughs> and it's, it, it never fails, you know, and it's like, it's so f common for me that it's hilarious, you know, and it's fun right? Because it also entertains the mind for a while. And then you finally just let go of it. And I don't necessarily, I mean, it, the, the, the challenge with investigation, of course, is that one can get stuck in the why, as opposed to the what and how and where, you know, and it's like, once you're stuck in the why, then you're just creating more problems. So the investigative as, you know, aspect is, and we'll talk about this in a future podcast, I'm sure, just this quality of investigation, but it's pretty interesting. And so, you know, okay, so that's just my mind doing this, or the mind doing this even. It's like, you know, which I'm identified with. And uh, I think a good practice is just recognizing what it feels like to have the mind that's, that is filled with this, and what it's like when it's not. <laughs> Well, and I think the other another aspect of this that may be of interest to some of our listeners is because it's certainly of interest to me is this sort of uh, again one of these other nuances here is where where do we come with with sort of art appreciation you know aesthetic appreciation uh, listening to good music looking at beautiful paintings um, I mean when we talk about sense pleasures which is something that's you know very very important in Buddhism is our understanding of the role of sense pleasures in our life, to what extent are we going to say, okay, all of that, you know, all of that wish to, to appreciate beautiful art or even a, a beautiful landscape, you know, just going out and seeing nature, to what extent is that greed, you know, and to what extent should we be therefore suspicious of all that as well? Um, your, your background is in music, so I, yeah. I'd be interested to hear. Well, I, you know, again, it's like an unwholesome desire is a desire that leads to unskillful action which may harm someone or harm myself. So I don't see a desire and for the pleasure of, you know, listening to music as one that, at least for me, leads to unwholesome action or enjoying a beautiful landscape, right? Leads, does not lead to unwholesome action unless, oh, this is a beautiful landscape. I should really live here. I really want to live here, you know, and, you know, that can lead to just a lot of proliferation which isn't helpful. It's not necessarily harmful, but it's certainly not helpful. So we just, you know, kind of watch the tendency of mind to go there and then come back and just be with what's here. So it's actually, to me, a really good practice, right? That, so we, we find ourselves in the midst of something beautiful and appreciate it for what it is and, and in this moment. And then can we let it go? And if we can't let it go and we want to go back to it, is that going to be harmful? You know, so 
And yeah, it's it's there. There are subtleties here because well, what's harmful, mm. you know, in, in in my case or in your case or in society's case. Yeah, and I mean, and the Buddha did, say, you know, does tell his monastics not to listen to music and not to dance. I know, right? Uh, for I think probably for these reasons is because he feels that it might not be healthy for them. I don't know. Um, he doesn't really describe why, but. I mean, you know, as you were saying, if you if you're able to to deal with, I mean, of course, I'm, I'm speaking to somebody who loves to listen to music, and I love to see good art, and I love nature. So, um, I'm not trying to say that I'm, you know, getting rid of this stuff uh, by any means. But at the same time, I can see that you know somebody look. I mean, there's a reason why billionaires want to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on paintings, and you know, people spend thousands of dollars to get box seats at the concert or Right. You know, I mean, this is money. I mean, money is, is thrown at things that are very beautiful um, of all kinds uh, because they're very beautiful. And so there are definitely, you know, there are unhealthy aspects surrounding all of this stuff and, and beautiful nature as well. I mean, mm -hmm. people buying houses in beautiful parts, as you were saying. Yeah. Um, and there's also the realization, and this is the important insight, of course is the impermanent nature of yeah. whatever it is plus the impermanent nature of the of the feeling right so whatever feeling arises from a beautiful piece of art or a beautiful landscape or a beautiful piece of music that feeling itself is impermanent the knowing of that is an important teaching the thing itself is impermanent yeah as well and even our appre appreciation of it is impermanent exactly yeah i mean People have taught, I guess, uh, I'm not the first one to say that, you know, the, you know, the first time you see a beautiful painting, wow, it's gorgeous. But then the hundredth time, it just becomes a postcard <laughs> and it's, it becomes banal, you right. know, and this is, you know, this is one of these things that I can't really, you know, I, I, I hard, have a hard time getting my mind around. You know, I, I go to beautiful places in the world, like a, like a beach or something like that. And I think to myself, would I really want to live here? You know, if I were to live here in six months, I'd be bored out of my skull, you know? <laughs> And I probably would be, you know. So there's this weird thing that not only is it the that the objects change because they decay and die and the, you know, for whatever reason, but also our own internal judgments of what's beautiful change. Right. If we sit with them too long, they just become part of the landscape. They become part of the woodwork. I mean, part mm -hmm. of the you know the the just and and uninteresting as a result. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so we always big... want something new. Something yeah, new. Yeah. 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 It's, a, it's an amazing, it's a bottomless pit. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's important to just sort of see, see the nature of that and realize it. And, and the insight into that is, is a major step, I think, toward our own awakening. So we could go on and on about this, but uh, we don't, you know, we're sort of hitting our time limit here, I'd say. <laughs> Not to be greedy, but I have other things to do. <laughs> but... <laughs> It, this has been a really interesting discussion, and we hope you found it interesting and look forward to hearing your comments around greed, hatred, uh, well, greed and desire. And um, We'll be doing you, one on hatred soon. So. Yeah, and if you remember the third, uh, well, by the time we do the next one, I'll remember what the third image is. So, um, <laughs> But by all means, feel free to write. <laughs> okay. Good to Great see to you, Great to talk Doug. to John. Yeah. Yep. Take care. Thanks for listening. 
If you've enjoyed this podcast, consider leaving a review on your local podcast directory. It would help us out a lot. You can check John out at johnaaron.net and Doug at Doug's Dharma on YouTube and his Patreon page linked in the notes. You've been listening to Diggin' the Dharma with Doug Smith and John Aaron.